It's nice to see so many here this morning. There's about 30 out in the Northex in the back. I'm sorry you have to stay out there. Uh, but it's really wonderful. I see some of our friends back from college, and it reminds me that uh, Easter is nearly here. Uh, just three weeks away, today's what, the first day of spring? Didn't feel so springy outside, but anyway, it's the first day of spring. And I just rejoice that so many are out to feast upon the things of God, to feed upon the things of our precious Lord. You know, as a, we read that portion this morning, I couldn't uh, also help but think how blessedly God puts our salvation twice in that little portion in Hebrews. He mentioned something that's very, very important to us. And this, uh, now I don't want to bring a message on this, I might get launched, but uh, this here is a blessed and wonderful thing. Twice he mentions this. He says this, Christ is a son over his own house. Whose house are we? If, boy, I put a big circle on that if, very important. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm unto the end. In other words, once you're saved, you know it. That's all the same. You may go through a lot of trials. You may go through a lot of burdens. You may have a lot of heartaches. But that confidence that you have in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord never, never, never varies. This is eternal life, that ye might know him. You see? So that it is a positive, wonderful, blessed, thing that is firm unto the end. In other words, if you can't hold firm unto the end, you don't even know what you believe. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil. Yea, though he, what? Slay me, yet would I trust him. So you judge your salvation this morning about the, with, the, with the firmness of your faith. It does not vary in eternal life, in the saviorhood of Jesus Christ and the lordship of Jesus Christ. No variation. If you hold it, and don't ever try to mistranslate this. Some have tried to do it. If you hold fast that confidence firm unto the end, and he says it again in the 14th verse to reassure us. He says, for we are made partakers of Christ if. You know, it's a good thing to circle the ifs. I always like to circle the ifs and the buts. Very important in Scripture. If and but. Always put circles around it, you know. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ifs and buts. And here he says, For if we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast 
unto what? The end. You see? So that we're to remember this is a great test of your true faith in Jesus Christ. It is, yea, though he slay me, yet would I trust him. I give unto you eternal life, and you shall never perish, and neither shall anyone pluck you out of my hand. And so this is this great and blessed salvation which God has given to us as his precious gift. Work out your own salvation. It has now become yours because you've trusted in me. You have died with me, and you can't die again. And you're alive with me, and I live forevermore. Therefore, Paul says, if we be dead with Christ, then are we also risen with him. Blessed, wonderful. Have you got that kind of confidence, you see? <clears throat> That's the key. Having that absolute, utter confidence in your Savior. And those are the things we've been talking about in reference to the coming of Christ again. Our confidence has to be in the whole word of God. You know, some people love to trust the Lord Jesus for salvation and then go their own way. But I would remind you that the whole purpose, the whole purpose of God, in this great salvation that he's given us, is to give us this glorious confidence, not only that he came the first time to redeem our souls, but that he's coming the second time to take us unto himself and to give us glorified bodies fashioned like unto his glorious body. And as I have been speaking to you, I spoke to you especially about Israel's great sins because I'm holding to that in reference to the second coming of Christ and their failures and how they were given to us as examples, it says in 1 Corinthians 10, they were given to us as examples upon whom the ends of the world should come so that we should not suffer the same as they did because of their departure from God. They failed continually and they sinned before God. They lost their communion with God. May I remind you of that? They lost their communion with God, and they were dispersed to the lands of the earth. We know that. Israel is all over the earth in all the many nations of earth. But they never lost their union with God. God's covenant with Israel is inviolable. His covenant with you and I, the covenant of grace, is inviolable. And he has made a covenant with them and a union with them that can never be broken. He has promised them that the land of Israel shall be theirs ultimately and finally. They shall possess it just as he promised. If he failed in that promise then he could also fail you in his promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Both are literal promises. 
And the literal promise to Israel is that they shall receive the land and it will come to them from the hand of God, not the United Nations or anybody else, but from the hand of God. And God will win the victory one day. And there's going to be a great war over that whole area of this world. It's shaping up at the present time. All of the statements that you see from politicians will be of no avail finally because the Bible is clear that the final conflict, the great conflict upon this earth shall be right where Israel is at this present time. Now, let me continue for here we're in the world of the last days. Certainly, uh, you know, we could always make that statement and I hear preachers make this statement sometimes and I always think it's, it's a statement that... Uh, anybody could make. They say this, we're nearer to the Lord's return than we've ever been. Well, now you can't miss. <laughs> you are now than a minute ago. We're nearer to the Lord's return than we have ever been. But we can truly say that as we look at the world that surrounds us today. In this world of the last days, of which Christ spoke and of which the prophets spoke. And we're living in those last days. And yet, by and large, we seem to be blind to the examples given to Israel, to all of the signs of the times. We go on much as though it's always been the same and it will never change. But, beloved, great changes are coming. And I spoke to you last week about what must we do then if... Israel's mistakes have been duplicated by ourselves, and many of them have, beloved, been duplicated in our own lives. Their sins of murmuring, their sins of fornication, their sins that cost them so much. And God told us that these things that happened to them were examples so we shouldn't be caught in the same snare. And yet, isn't it the strangest thing? History seems to teach us nothing. Nations have fallen by the wayside. Wars have come and gone. You would have thought by now that mankind somehow would have come to some understanding that war never wins anything. Have we learned? No, we haven't learned. And what does Jesus say? He shall have wars and rumors of wars unto the very end because of your greed and because of your lusts. He says you don't seem to fathom why it goes on but it's all based upon the greed and the lust for power and for nations to have prestige and to be the greatest nation on earth. I hear that time and again about our own nation, the greatest nation on earth. I wish we were the greatest spiritual nation on earth. This would really count. To just say that we have power, that we have great, great amounts of ammunition, that we have nuclear and uh, bombs, that we have atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs that were loaded with armament. I can't help but remember that Israel, many times, God turned the whole thing around. And where they thought the power was in their might, God said, not by your might nor by your power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. In other words, that it isn't all the power that we have that's going to make this nation what this nation should be. It's going to be a Holy Spirit revival in the hearts of individuals like you and me in a church just like this that can affect not only us here but this whole area that we dwell in and that we might be the revivalist, if we might say that, 
that others might find Christ as their personal Savior. Last week I spoke to you about what should we do as a child of God then in these last days. We ought to defy the apostasy of our times. All of the turning away from the great and essential doctrines of the faith. The turning to old wives' fables, Paul says. All kind of things, spiritualism, astrology, all of the different false sects of the world. <clears throat> and beloved, they're spreading like wildfire. And Paul warns that in the last days they'll come in evil teachers and they'll come in unawares. Be careful, he says, even in the church, be careful that evil teachers do not get in unawares and bring in damnable heresies into the very church of Jesus Christ. And so there is this fear in our hearts. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but there's a fear in our hearts that nothing should contaminate the great church of the living God, and that we should hold fast to the great and essential doctrines of our faith and not become involved, as I said last week, in argumentations about things that have nothing to do with salvation. We're to remember that salvation is of God. And salvation is in the cross and the blood of Christ and we're to know nothing among men save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we're not to try to judge which sectarian group has the inner road to heaven. I can assure you that none of them do. That it is only personal faith in your own individual heart that you could read those portions in Hebrews today and when you read them you knew where you stand, stood with Jesus Christ. And you could say with Paul, having this confidence that he that hath begun a good work in me will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And you know it. That's salvation. And this is what we're to proclaim. We're not to waste our time argumentation, disputing. I hear of classes, I hear of churches where all they do is dispute. We are proclaimers. That's what God calls us. We're to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not disputers of this world, as Paul says. We are not to go on disputing with people. You have a message from God written in the word of God and that is inviolable truth and you don't have to worry about a thing. You proclaim it and if they don't want to listen, shake the dust off your feet and go to the next one. Time is too short. May I say this? If, if the Chinese people what, 700 and some odd million or near 800 million people today will be a billion in a few years? Chinese? If the Chinese people, we talk about wasting our time, if the Chinese people were to march before you or before all of us, four abreast, 24 hours a day, every single day of the year, they would never pass us because there are more born in every year. And from now through eternity, you would stand there and watch the Chinese people march past you for a breast and never stop. Never, never, never because of their birth rate. 
And the same thing is true of India. And we waste our time. While a world is dying outside, we're not even interested in the people in our own nation. Here we are, we speak of the last days, the days when Christ will come soon. And I would venture that there are neighbors beside you and neighbors on the block and people in the village who either don't even know the church exists and that you possibly have never borne a testimony to for Jesus Christ. And yet we wonder, why hasn't the world been converted? Well, I want to tell you, it'll never be converted till your next door neighbor begins to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't convert the world by staying on your knees and praying and praying and praying. Once you get on your knees and pray, God, make me a soul winner, God will get you off your knees and get you moving. You're only on your knees there to ask God to give you the Holy Spirit energy to do the work that God has called you to do. And so, beloved, we're not to waste time in argumentation, getting involved with all of these periphery issues that are becoming involved in the world. Beloved, what a tragedy it is. How can we ever expect the world to believe unless we really say in our, from our hearts what we believe about Jesus Christ? I've said this time and again. You can sit in your neighborhood and you can look as a nice family and I don't doubt that most of these families here and I would pray all of you look as very nice Christian family because people see you get out in the morning and walk out to the car and get in the car with the children and you go off to church and they say, aren't they a nice Christian family? Well, I want to tell you, if that's all they know about you, it's not helping them one little bit. They have to know why you're a nice Christian family. They have to know what made you the kind of a Christian family that you are. And if that's all they know about you, and I hear people say this time and again, oh, I live the life. Well, you better live it and talk it. We better walk as we talk and we better talk as we live. To keep quiet while you're talking about being born again of the incorruptible seed of the word of God and you really have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you and you have the confidence within your breast that you're headed on the road of heaven, road to heaven and you're not saying anything to anybody else strikes me as very selfish. If all the glories of heaven belong to you and you're not sharing it possibly with even a family or those that you know need Christ as their personal savior. How can, the, how can the world outside ever understand these things? And how can it ever know peace unless we talk to them about Jesus Christ? Think of the turmoil in the world today, the problems that people face, the needs they have. And beloved, if only we would remember too that there are other things we must do. We must understand that we're not to get involved in ecumenical or interfaith movements. God help us to understand this. Where it is truth, we shall join. But where it is a mixture of light and darkness, we shall not touch. 
There is an ecumenical spirit amongst the brethren of Jesus Christ and always have been because we are members of one body of the flesh and the bones of Jesus Christ. But today in some places, now I read just yesterday, I think, that in some, I think it's in the Garden City Cathedral, there will be observed today an ecumenical Lord's Supper. And it will be composed of 10 or 12 different sectarian groups, some of which have denied the virgin birth, some of which denied the vicarious atonement, and yet in the cathedral they'll all meet together don't ask me how you do this. I don't fathom it. The Episcopal Church has an altar and the other churches have no altar. The Episcopal Church indicates as a sacrifice made upon the altar for Jesus Christ. The others indicate that the Lord's Supper is just a remembrance of his death until he comes again. How you merge together and you call them a body, I do not know. We're to remember that we are to avoid interfaith movements that bring together the false and the true. What does Paul say? What fellowship hath what? Light with what? Darkness. None. It's true in marriage. It's true in our relationship to Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. We have fellowship with him, we can't have fellowship with darkness. And so with all the talk of a great ecumenical movement to bring all the churches into one big organization, God help us, I dread bigness because bigness is not part of God's economy. God says his own, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's will to give unto you the kingdom of God. Narrow is the gate and straight is the way that leads to life eternal. And how many find it? Few there are that find it. I fear bigness. If bigness is the only quality we could say for a church, it's big. That this is the mark of its spirituality, Lord, forgive us. Show me the man with a large faith. And that's what counts. Not the bigness of the church, but the largeness of our faith in Jesus Christ as personal Savior. If light and darkness are to be put together, we'll have a monstrosity for a church. And it will be much like the mustard seed spoken of by Jesus in the parables in Matthew 13. And he says, and the mustard seed grew into a great tree and the fowls of the air gathered into it. And the strange thing is that a mustard tree, a mustard seed never becomes a great tree. And it's merely that that little seed that started grew into a monstrosity called the church, which was not the true church. And he said, the fowls of the air, the unclean, gathered into it so that it was one great false church. What does Paul say? I may I say this, Paul knew nothing about the interfaith movements. 
Paul knew nothing about the ecumenical spirit. Listen to Paul when he speaks. Defend the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. Defend it. That's our job, isn't it, in these last days? To defend the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. What shall we do? We shall defend unto the death the word of God. Is this how you feel this morning? Lord, I would defend unto the death thy precious word. I believe it with all my heart. I trust it. It is a means of my soul's salvation. I live and I breathe through that word. You know, when I, when I talk about this, this is a high and holy calling. This is something that reaches down deep into the vitals of a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl. When we say we live and we breathe in Jesus Christ. What a dreadful thing it is when the seed that is being sown in church buildings this morning is not seed. And you remember that I read to you a few weeks ago from, I think it was Deuteronomy 22, 9, where it said, Thou shalt not sow thy vineyard with diverse seeds, lest the fruit of thy seed which thou hast sown and the fruit of thy vineyard be defiled. He says, remember, there cannot be many seeds within the body of the church. You can't sow diverse seeds and expect to get the kind of fruit that I want. Our pulpits, beloved, are filled with men today who have forsaken their old Bibles, have forsaken the old great authors of the books of years ago. Their libraries lay in dust, and instead they pick up all the contemporary works as though anything that's contemporary, anything that's up to date must be the truth. It is not true. That Bible is true. And they've forsaken all of these precious things that would give them great strength in Christ. That Bible has been laid aside. And as Israel of old finally despised the manna, and they said it's a light food, we're not interested in it, even so men of God today have despised the word of God. Because you remember that God gave Israel manna in the wilderness, food from God. And they said this is a light thing, we're sick of it, give us something else. And he gave them quails to eat flesh. And so it is today. The word of God is forsaken. Divers seeds are sown. And the church has no power. A man has to forsake popularity, beloved, if he's going to hold fast and be a simple expositor of the word of God. He has to forsake all of the great world popularity and stick close to the word of God. Look at how Israel of old worshipped the golden calf. And I'm going to close with this, how Israel went in Exodus 32 and they worshipped the golden calf. What a terrible thing that was. Here was Moses. He'd gone up to the mount. He went up to the mount to receive from God the oracles. And he had told the elders. Seventy elders went with him up to the mount before he went further and left them all behind. But he had told the elders, he told the people of Israel, God has called me. God wants me to come up to the mount. 
to receive the law, the Decalogue. And he went up to the mount. No sooner had he gone up a little while when what did the people do? They came to Aaron and they said, we know not where this man is. Though he had told them where he was going, we don't know when he's coming back. And they said to Aaron, Aaron, give us gods that we may worship them. Imagine, here's Israel. Imagine the, the, the deliverances of God to this people, how he delivered them so many places through the Red Sea, brought them up on dry land. <coughs> this people. And here now God wants Moses and he speaks to Aaron and says, Aaron, you take charge now while I'm gone. You and the elders take charge while I'm gone. And while I'm gone, you take care of the flock of God. And he's up there and the first thing that Aaron does, he's warned, he's told, the people come and they say to him, we warn you, we want other gods. You make us gods. We don't know where this man has gone. Doesn't it remind you of Jesus? It reminds you that he speaks in that place where he says that a man went into the far country. And when he was in the far country, they said, we don't know whether he's gone and whether he's coming back again. And here's Moses up in the mount. And Aaron comes down. And what does he do? They just tell him. They say, we need other gods. And what does he do? He says to all the people, give me all of your gold earrings. This was easy for the, the Jews if they're going to have other gods. Maybe not easy to give away. But they took all their gold earrings and they gave them to Aaron. And Aaron made a calf of gold out of the earrings of the Israelites. Riches were their portion. Gold was their portion. They had that. And they gave it to Aaron, and Aaron made an idol of gold. And they put an altar in front of it, and they worshipped the golden calf, though God had warned them. Beloved, if you would think of what this meant. They had been told that Moses was going to the mount. The elders were to take care of the people. And the minute he didn't come back quickly, they began to go after the physical things. Not only that, Aaron sinned deeper than that. He made all the people go naked. This was the high priest of God. And he made them all go naked. God says it was a shame before the peoples of the earth. And they committed fornication. And they committed all sorts of things before this obscene God, the golden calf. And I want to tell you the same thing has happened with Jesus. He's gone away and the world has become enmeshed with all the gold and all of the dollar signs and all of the rest and they've forgotten that Jesus is coming back and Moses came back. And when Moses came back, it says, and he saw the people dancing and playing, and he saw them in their fornication. And he said to Aaron, Aaron, why did you do this thing? And then in parentheses it says, and Aaron had made the people go naked. Well, you hear about all the nudity today, don't you, huh? Hear it all around us. And God brought his judgment down about Israel in that time. And that judgment was great. 
3,000 were slain in one day. And then, beloved, after the slaying of the 3,000, Oh, Moses said this, they that are on the Lord's side, come out and stand with me. Do you know who came out? This is an amazing truth. I never realized it. Only the children of Levi. And that's all. Why? Because the children of Levi were the priests of God. <coughs> and we, Peter says, are a royal priesthood. Ah, this was Luther's cry. The priesthood of all believers. The only ones that came out to Moses were the tribe of Levi. In Exodus 32, you can read this. And they came out on the Lord's side. And so, beloved, it is with us today. If we're true believers, we come out on the Lord's side and we stand fast for those things that we believe in and we don't become enmeshed with all that Aaron and Israel became enmeshed with, with all the flesh pots of Egypt, going back to all that was unclean and impure. Paul speaks of that and he says, and such were some of you, but now you are clean. Now you are washed. You are made clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, here we are called of God to be a separate people. God says these things were written for examples to you. Don't you be like Israel was. When Moses went away, the people, I had teachers, Aaron was one of my top men. He was a high priest, and he was so deceived that he himself made a calf of gold and had the people worship the calf of gold, and he also made the people go naked. You judge every man by the word of God, and you see whether he's standing fast upon the truth of the word of God. And remember that when Moses asked for those to come out from among them, the only ones came out were the priests of God because they're the only true believers. You're either a priest this morning or you're nothing because only priests can enter God's presence. As I finish and I see the light flashing, turn with me to Second Peter just so I can read it to you. Second Peter 3. I'm sorry, Second Peter, First uh, Peter 2, Second Peter 3. First Peter 2. Notice the fifth verse. Ye also as lively stones. He's talking to the strangers that he's speaking to here. In that first verse, he says, The strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia in that first chapter. Now he says, You are lively stones, are built up a what? Spiritual house. What's next? A holy priesthood. Notice that to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. 
That's what Luther cried. The priesthood of all believers. Because Luther said, no man or woman or boy or girl who is not a priest can enter the presence of God. Only priests can. And therefore, God says, you're a spiritual household. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so, beloved, may we remember that. Are we on the Lord's side? Those that came out to Moses were from the house of the priesthood. And we who come out and stand with Christ are those who will stand fast with Jesus no matter what comes. You will stand with him for time and eternity, having this confidence that he that began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you have that confidence? That's it. That holy, blessed confidence in Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank thee for thy precious word, blessed to our hearts. Lord, we're mindful this morning of the examples given to Israel. And Lord, we remember that Israel went through many of the things that the Church of Christ is going through. That Moses, in a very wonderful way, was a type of Christ. And is going away, and in the people, and how they looked, and said, Moses is gone. We know not where this man has gone. And we remember that Peter, in his epistle, says there will be those who come and say, where is the promise of his coming? And while Moses was gone, they worshipped everything else. Pleasure was their God. They did what they wanted to do. And they suffered great judgments from God. And the only ones who really came out and stood on the Lord's side were those who were part of the priesthood. And then we see Peter saying, you're lively stones. You're a royal priesthood. And this he speaks to strangers that he's never seen, but that he knows have become part of the true church, the body of Christ. And we're told in Hebrews 3, that our house is his body. It's him dwelling in us. The body of Christ. Christ has come to dwell in us. Know ye not that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost? We're temples. We're priests in our own temple. And we make spiritual sacrifices to God. Oh, Lord, help us to see this. How blessed it is. We worship within ourselves with the Christ who dwells within us. We don't turn to heaven to look for him. He says, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth. Thou art my temple. If I do not dwell in thee, thou hast no part with me. For if any man has not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So, Father, help us to understand to touch the hem of his garment this morning, to feel the glorious flow of the healing presence of Christ to our souls that we might truly be separated unto him. That's the meaning of the word saints, separated to God. 
Lord, separate us. Help us not to get enmeshed in all that we see around us, the new morality, the new freedoms. There's nothing new. Nations have gone through this time and again and fallen by the wayside. But, Father, touch us with thy Holy Spirit and fill us to overflowing with thy grace, and thy love, and thy compassion. We pray in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.